If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 3. Now we left off last week in Acts 2.41. We're not just going to skip verses 42 through 47. What we're going to do is we're actually going to make them up in chapter 4 because there's another section that's similar. So I'm not, we're skipping ahead, but I'm not, we'll come back to it. I'm not just going to just skip over that. It's actually a very important section. But I didn't want to just tag it on to the end of last week's message just to throw it in there because uh, we, we covered a, a quite a bit last week. So we're going to make it its own special thing, but it'll be in just a, a couple weeks. So today we're going to jump into chapter 3. Peter is going to begin some of his ministry in Jerusalem. As we saw last week, the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. Peter gets up and proclaims the gospel message. 3,000 people are added to their numbers, and now they continue on spreading this good news about, about Jesus. And so it begins, or continues, excuse me, here in chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse, verse 1. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. We have Peter and John doing what we, th- we think they've pretty much done uh, since Jesus' ascension, which is spend time in the temple. That's where they're, remember, they're, they're Jewish, their heritage is Jewish, so that they, their comfort is there at the temple. That's where God's presence was in a very special way. So they're at the temple. Also, if you're going to spread the good news of Jesus, you're going to go to places where they would be receptive to the good news. And remember these, Peter and John, we'll see Paul's going to do it a little differently, but these guys are appealing to Jewish people in order to say, hey, you know your history. You know that the Messiah was to come. The Messiah is here. So they're in the temple doing what they do, and there's a man who is, who's been unable to walk since, since he was born. He was born this way. He's being carried to the temple gate. The gate is, is referred to here in Acts as beautiful. Now, there's no gate in the temple that was officially named that, so we're not exactly sure. This is an artist's rendition of what Herod's temple, which was the second temple, would have been during uh, Jesus' ministry and during this time. I know it kind of gets grainy when you, when you get into the, uh, in the overhead. But the gate they're most likely referring to is this gate here. It could be the gate that you enter the temple in, but it's most likely this one that separates the court of the women into the, the court where men could go, and then this is the temple itself where only certain people were allowed inside, right? The Gentiles, anyone could come out here outside the temple. Women and Jewish men, Jewish men and Jewish women were allowed in here, and then only Jewish men and then only the priests, and then obviously once you get in the temple, only the high priest was allowed in certain spots. So you understand how the how an ancient temple was built. As, as you got closer to where God's presence was, fewer and fewer people were allowed access, right? That's just how it went. So the most likely is he sits probably near this gate. Now, history describes this gate as, as, being, as being beautiful and, and rather large. So it's probably uh, maybe on these steps is where he sits every day. And he sits there every day. And what's the scripture tell us? What's he do? He begs for those going into the temple courts. Now, this is very common in, in every ancient temple. If you were somebody... Remember, there's no, there's no social safety net in the ancient world. So somebody who is born with, with a birth defect or unable to work physically is essentially doomed from birth. They, they have no way of being taken care of unless they have somebody in their family who can, who can provide for them and take care of them. Uh, there's no computer programming jobs in the ancient world, right? There's no way you can, most jobs re- require physical ability to do that job. And so he has some, some good friends or good family, that at least that carries him to this gate where he begs every day for his existence. That's how he exists. 
It's whatever people are willing to do. Now, th- this happened at the temple, of course, because they're, he's betting on people being a little more generous when they come to worship God. That's what he's hoping for, right? That's why he's there. So he begs there every day in these temple courts. Peter and John happen to, to go by him. And what's he do in verse 3? He asks them for money, right? He's doing what he does. Peter and John look straight at him. And Peter gets his attention by saying, look at us. So the man gives him his attention expecting to get something from them. And this is what happens next in verse 6. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. What I do have I give you. Now I'm guessing, but for a second there, he loses his interest, right? I mean, if, if you beg for an existence and this guy says, I have silver or gold I don't have, you're thinking, okay, you're not giving me anything. Keep moving, right? I mean, really. That's, I, there's other people I need to get something from. This is how he exists. This isn't a joke to him, right? He, he begs, but he begs for his very existence, for his very life. So when Peter says, hey, I don't, silver or gold I don't have, he's like, okay, move on then. Somebody else needs to come because this is, this is how I live. This is how I exist. He says, but, I, but what I do have, I give you. I'm guessing the second phrase perks his attention back up again. Okay, wait a second. He does have something to give me. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter says, using Jesus' name, get up. The man's probably thinking, this guy's crazy. Right? This guy has lost his marbles. I'd rather just have some money. Don't pretend to, to give me the ability to walk. Remember, he was born this way. He's never walked in his life. Never had this ability. Never been possible for him. Peter takes him by the hand, by the right hand, and helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. Verse 8, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. This, This man unnamed man who has begged for his existence who has never been able to walk is hoping to get some money from Peter and John. And what he gets is, is far, far better. It exceeds any amount of money that they could possibly, possibly give. In the name of Jesus, Peter heals him, gives him the ability to walk for the first time in his life. If you've been online before? Have you ever watched when, when they put implants in, in people's ears and they're able to hear for the free? You ever watch those videos? If you don't like, if you don't like gross crying, then I wouldn't suggest watching those. I don't care how big and tough you think you are. The little, uh, you watched, I, oh, I, not long ago, I watched a, a, a little baby who had the implant put in. They turn the implant on and hears mom's voice for the first time. Yeah, you'll, your allergies will start acting up in a hurry, I promise, right? I don't care how big and tough you think you are. He hears mama's voice for the first time, and it's like, he's this look on his face, and you're just over there going, yep, no, nope, yep, there it is. Hit me right in, right in the feelings. It's that kind of moment, right, we have here. You see by his reaction, you see what the Scripture says, what, what Luke tells us, his ankles and feet become strong, and what's he start doing in verse 8? He jumped to his feet, began to walk. Well, yeah, you would too. We don't know how old he is. We have no clue, right? The, the Scripture doesn't tell us his age. Of how long he's been this way. All we know is since the day of birth, he has never been able to walk. He's never had that ability. He's sat there begging, watching people who can walk 
How often do we take for granted just the simple things of walking? Broke my foot my senior year of high school. Couldn't walk, had to use crutches. All of a sudden, you have a great and deep appreciation for your simple ability to walk, don't you? Break an arm? Especially if you break your, an arm where you, the, the, the hand you write with. Has anyone done that? Broke a wrist? All of a sudden, you have a great appreciation for the task of writing, don't you? That you've, you've never appreciated before. This man has never had the ability to walk. And so when he gets the chance, he takes it. And he jumps to his feet and begins to walk. He doesn't just get up and walk home, though. What's he do? In verse 8, it says he went with them. Peter and John are in their, going on their way into the temple. He walks with them, walking and jumping. Yeah, absolutely. You get a chance to walk for the first time, you're going to take every bit of it. And he walks and jumps. Now you can imagine the people that are going to the temple, generally as you approach the temple, it becomes a little more somber, a little more reverence as you get closer to the temple. Right? This is a very serious business. And you see this guy who's all of a sudden, his little head's bopping up, right? He's just jumping his way to the temple. You're thinking to yourself, what is going on here? What's happening? Because as he goes towards the temple, he's walking, jumping, and Luke tells us the third thing is what? Praising God. He's praising God. Verse 9, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. He's a regular there. This is where he goes. Every day he goes to the temple and sits there and begs. So everyone knows him. Everyone who comes to the temple on any regular basis goes, wait a second, I, I know him. You ever had that moment where you see someone and you're not quite sure how, where you place them, but you know for a fact that you know them? Yeah, it happens to me all the time because I'm terrible at people's names. So I look and say, like, oh, I know that person from somewhere. That's this moment they're having. I know him. Where, he's, he, I know he, Something's off though. They realize, wait a second, he's the guy who can't walk. He's one who's sitting here day after day after day begging. Now he can now he can walk. And it fills the people with wonder and amazement as it should. As it should. What I wanted you to look at in verse ten though, is look what Luke says. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. This just happened. But no more is he just someone who sits and begs. He used to. Our teachers, tense is what? That's past tense. Man, how powerful is that? Because maybe you've been able to walk your whole life. Maybe God didn't have to cure you of that. But you know what you used to be? All kinds of things, didn't you? You used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, didn't you? You used to walk according to the ways of this world. You used to live, move, and act, breathe in darkness. But you met this Jesus, and so no more do you live in darkness. No more are you dead in your transgressions. As a matter of fact, you're alive in this Christ, aren't you? See, when we interact, we have an interaction with this risen Jesus. We're not the people we used to be, are we? He's no longer a beggar. That's what he used to be. No more. And you used to be lots of things. You're no longer 
those things. Now, people may try to bring them back, might bring back the past of the person you used to be. That's an ugly way of arguing, by the way, is hashing back the past. That's not a good, that's not a healthy way of doing that. We all have done it before. I'm just as guilty as you are. It's not a good way of doing it. Well, remember when? Ah, that's, that's not good. That's not healthy. Because we all used to be all kinds of things. No longer are we. You and I, as we've, we've come in contact with this resurrected Jesus, he is, he is the kind of God who changes, who transforms, right? He changes us day by day. So the person you used to be doesn't matter. It's the person you are and who God is shaping you to be. That's what matters the most. So don't ever let anybody hold you in the past. Because it's exactly that, it's past. The people around him are, are in awe of who he is. And the story continues in verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. What is Peter doing? He uses this opportunity as a chance to proclaim the good news again. The man is hanging on to Peter and John. Why wouldn't he be? He's pretty happy about these two guys. Pretty cool dudes, aren't they? And all the people are astonished. And now we have this, this crazy thing happening at the temple. The temple is designed, I don't know if you know this, the steps of the temple, which you can actually go see part of them still today, they still exist. The steps of the temple are kind of like, you ever walked up our steps out here? The steps out here are kind of awkwardly long, right? The temples were that way, but they're not all the same length. And they did that on purpose. So as you approach the temple in Israel, the steps were not the same length. The reason for that is to slow you down. If all the, if, think about it. If you go up a staircase and every step is the same length, you can get a pattern. You can get a rhythm going, right? And you can start going up those steps pretty quickly. Well, the whole point of the temple is to slow you down. You're approaching God in His presence, and so we don't want you running up to Him. We want you walking slowly. And so every step is different dimension. It takes you a second. You have to pay attention to your steps. And what we have here is the opposite of that. The people are astonished, and they are running to Peter, John, and this man who's been healed. This isn't normal behavior when you're close to the temple. It's the opposite. And I want to, the, the same picture again, I apologize, because Solomon's colonnade is actually down, down here. It looks like this. It has these, these vertical pillars, but it was built up a little higher down this section. So he's normally here. His friends are taking him probably through here when they interact with Peter and John, and then they're heading back this direction when the people begin running. They're running away from where they're supposed to be walking towards. They're supposed to be coming into the gates and into the temple, and, and now they're coming out of this area and running back this direction to Peter, John, and the beggar. It's as if God is sending a little subtle message, isn't He? If you remember, when Jesus is crucified, Matthew's Gospel tells us that the, that the that there's a curtain that separates the holy place and the holy of holies. And that curtain, when Jesus is crucified, what happens to it? It's torn in two. The message, of course, meaning that God has left the temple, right? 
That he, you, don't, you don't have to go there to find him anymore. His power can no longer be contained in one little room. And what do we have happening in this story? People are running from where they're supposed to be headed to, to the temple to worship God. But we just saw in chapter, Acts chapter 2 that God can't be held there, can he? As the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples at Pentecost, it's God's way of saying, hey, you don't have to look for me there because I'm everywhere. A little building, a little room can no longer contain me, can't keep my presence. You can find me wherever you go. And here we have the story of this man being healed and what's happening. People are going, instead of heading towards the temple, they're running away from it towards something that God has done. And look, look at the words that Peter uses in verse 12. Peter sees them running to them. They're wanting to asking questions. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Look what Peter says. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? What's Peter doing instantly? Hey, don't look at me. Don't look at John. It's not about us. Who's it about? It's about this resurrected Christ. And what's he say? In a very Jewish way, verse 13, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that you've been worshiping, the God you're trying to find in that temple, he's the one who's done this. And he's done this through his servant, through his son, Jesus. You're going to find him there. You don't have to go to find him there. Because a new thing has come. The Spirit, this Holy Spirit has come, and now this, this God is, is inside the hearts of people who can go anywhere and everywhere. Peter reminds them of how this Jesus was treated, doesn't he? The second half of verse 13. You, notice that, <laughs> okay, we know Peter is a pretty bold guy. We saw that in the Gospels. You've ever been, you've probably been in a situation, a confrontation where it's getting, it's getting a little amped up. Everyone's excited to see this. And what does Peter do in the end of verse 13? He doesn't say, people like you, your kinds of people. He says, you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Peter points the finger at these people. Now, they might not have been anywhere near the temple or the courts when this happens to Jesus. What's Peter doing? It's collective guilt, isn't it? He's saying, you, you were a part of this. It's, it's, it's your fault that Jesus was crucified. It's your fault he was handed over to be killed. And you know what? Peter's right. Because guess whose fault it is? It's ours. It's our fault. Jesus was handed over to be killed because of, because of my sin and your sin. So while we weren't there in the crowd shooting crucify crucify it's our fault isn't it notice peter cuts straight to the heart here doesn't he this guys remember it was it was you who did this you were there i can imagine them saying well i i didn't i didn't do that nothing nothing at all look what he does in verse 14 he doesn't stop you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you you killed the author of life but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, verse 14 is really, really important. Peter's accusation against them is that they disowned the Holy One. Remember who Peter is? Remember what he did. 
Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to disown me tonight three times before morning hits. Peter says, Jesus, never. No way. I'll die with you. And what does Peter do? Disowns him three times. In his shame and his sorrow, he goes and hides. But this Jesus of, our, what's, Jesus of ours, what's he do with Peter? After the tomb is empty, Peter's out fishing, doing what he's supposed to do, right? Going back to his old job, old way of life. And Jesus comes on the shore as Peter's coming in. Jesus has a little fire going, cooking some breakfast. And what happens? Remember the story? Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He goes, Jesus, of course I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He goes, yeah, of course I do. Take care of my lambs. Peter, do you love me? The story tells us that Peter's crushed, isn't he? He's hurt. Jesus, of course you do. Of course I love you. Take care of my church. In that moment, what is Jesus doing? He's, yeah, he's forgiving. He's restoring Peter to his place. It's Jesus' way of telling Peter, hey man, it's okay. I'm a God who forgives. God who redeems. And so when Peter speaks, verse 14, don't you, ever, don't you think Peter isn't looking inside his own heart saying, hey man, I did it too. I did it too. I disowned him. It was on me. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. Whew. It's quite the accusation, isn't it? So this Jesus, this God in the flesh, you played a part in his death. And he is the author, the author of life. But, but, Good news is coming, isn't it? All that's okay. All that can be forgiven. All that can be repented of because this God of ours raised this Jesus from the dead. And Peter says, we are witnesses of this. We were there and we saw it. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him that has completely healed Him as you can all see. Peter and John instantly say, hey, don't look at us. It's not us who healed this man. You look to this Jesus. It's through you putting your faith, your hope, your trust in Him that this miraculous act has occurred. It's in Him. We move, we live, we breathe. Peter continues in verse 17, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Peter's message is what? Turn, repent, change your life, and follow this Messiah, this Jesus, whom the prophets had foretold years and years before. Verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Gone. Gone. Your translation might say blotted out. It might say something else. What's the point of wiped out? They are there no more. They are gone. 
How often do you and I live as though they're there? How often do we we carry that baggage with us, don't we? As if we still have to put it on our shoulders. And God is looking down from, from heaven saying, I already took care of it. It's already gone. Now I know that it's hard. Grace is can be difficult, can't it? Because we want to feel as though we're, we've accomplished something. And so we, we carry our, our sins and our guilt as though it does something. It's like, see, God, look, I, I'm taking it seriously because I'm holding on to him still. And God's going, wait, what? It's not the point. The point was, in one magnificent act, Jesus took care of them once and for all. That your sins and my sins have been wiped out. That they are gone. There is no better news in all the world than that. That your sins are no longer and will never be counted against you. That when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in this Jesus, he cleans the slate. He continues to clean that slate, doesn't he? Day by day. All we do is repent. We come to God with an open and contrite heart saying, God, God, forgive me for my sins. They are many. And God says, I got you. I got you. Peter giving them and us good news, isn't he? Continues verse 21. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you and anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Apostle Peter gives a great, 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 simple, concise gospel message, doesn't he? Saying your sins have been forgiven. You turn to this Jesus, repent, put your faith in him, and things will be better. Things will be different. That same message is true for us almost 2,000 years later, isn't it? The same simple gospel message that says your sins have been forgiven, that all you have to do is put your hope, your faith, and your trust in this Jesus, and he'll handle the rest. I know it can be hard, believe that it's that easy that it's that simple but it is that easy and that simple and you make that decision maybe you've made it already if you haven't i'd like you to think about it if you've made that decision at some point in your life you can look back now maybe it's been a year five years 10 years 15 years maybe you've known jesus your whole life i want you to think back to the person you were you used to be before you met this jesus and think back to now to today to the person you are See, what God does is God doesn't just forgive us our sins. It's a pretty big deal in and of itself. He doesn't stop there, does He? He continues to mold and shape us, to transform us, and to turn us into the kind of people He would like us to be. doesn't mean we're perfect, because we're all far from it. I should only speak for myself, I guess. Maybe you are. Far from perfection. God seems to like us that way. Matter of fact, He doesn't just like us that way. He loves us that way. The Apostle Paul tells us that while we were enemies of God, we were, we were bent against Him. He offered the Son, Jesus, on our behalf. 
If he does that for us when we're his enemies, what will he do for us once we call him friend? See, part of the Christian life isn't just accepting this Jesus, making that first moment, whenever you made that moment, that's great. The next part is just as important, isn't it? As we let God mold and shape us into his people. The kind of people he wants us to be. And God will do, he's faithful in it. He always has and he always will. What does Peter end in this section with in verse 26? When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Please understand that you or or anybody else you come in contact with, you don't have to be all cleaned up to come to this Jesus. Jesus is the one who does the cleaning, doesn't he? And how often do we think, "Ah, I'm just not good enough for that. I don't know enough for that. I just can't. And God's going, wait, what? Like it's already been done. I already took care of that. I've already handled that. We come with excuse after excuse of God, I can't do this, or, I can't, I can't talk about you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good enough. If that was the case, none of us would ever talk. But Jesus. See, He's turning each of us from those wicked ways, from those evil ways, from those ways of darkness, and He's turning us towards towards the light, isn't He? And He continues to do that day by day. The Christian life is a is a journey, it's a process. It doesn't happen just in a mo- in a moment. It's every single, every single day we choose, Jesus, I'm going to make you King and Lord of my life. Every day. No matter if you've been a Christian for a week, or a year, or five years, or 50 years, the process is continual, isn't it? Of Him transforming us and changing us. And it's okay that you're not there yet. Because God isn't done with you yet, is He? pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words we find here from Peter as he speaks so powerfully about your grace, your mercy, and your compassion. As we see what you can do, God, that your powers are, are unstoppable. Your powers know no limit. And God, we are so grateful that you love us, that you care so deeply for us, that you have saved us, you've rescued us from this problem of sin that every one of us has. That while that in and of itself is a mighty and glorious act. You didn't just stop there. But Jesus, once he paid the sacrifice, which was he was buried, didn't stay buried very long. That he came back to life to give each and every one of us hope, the hope of life everlasting with you. And God, we all have that, that hope. And God, you didn't even stop there. But you promised that even while we're on this earth, though we're not perfect, you will continually transform us and mold us and shape us into the kind of people you would like us to be, the kind of people who reflect your glory and your honor. And God, we are so grateful that you do, that you make us better, better spouses, better parents, better neighbors, better people, not so we can brag, not so we can think we, we deserve something, God, but because you are reflecting your glory through us. You're using us to first with our lives and second with our mouths share your gospel to people who haven't heard it or seen it yet. So God, we ask that you would use us as your instruments of of love, grace, of mercy, and compassion as we leave this place, that we would show this world who's in desperate need of all those things what it looks like to follow you, to have you living in us. God, we thank you and we love you. We pray all this in the powerful and holy name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.